0: we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 today. There are some passages that you just, you don't ever really cover in preaching. I mean, we're going to talk about the slaughter of the innocents, you know, Matthew, when Herod kills the babies. That's just never, I never really felt that's a good sermon subject. I mean, it really isn't. I mean, it's just like, oh, okay. I mean, There's some lessons from that, but oh, okay. But it's something, you know, we need to cover from time to time, and there's some questions about it. So I'm going to deal with that uh, today. And uh, then a couple over the next couple of weeks, I'll deal with a couple of passages like that. Sometimes you just need to cover them, and uh, we'll do it here. So in uh, Matthew chapter 2, we're all familiar, I think, with the story of the Magi, about every other Christmas I do the Magi, uh, and at some point, <clears throat> the Magi come, they ask uh, Herod, and, you know, where, where's, where's the king of the Jews? And... You know, the Jewish scholar says, it Was me born in Bethlehem? So they go. And Herod says, Come on back when you're through so I can worship him, which is a light. <coughs> Excuse me, I got a little bit of tickle. Um, and then the angel tells the manchester not to go. So, verse 13, chapter 2. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord, that was the manchester, had left. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. From the very beginning of the life of Jesus, there was the attempt to end Jesus. Now, Herod, oftentimes, if you've been involved in church much, you've served the life of Herod. Herod was an unbelievably cruel man. Um, Augustus had appointed him, well, actually, he had been appointed to be over the area of the Jews, what we call Palestine, Um, around 40 or so uh, B.C. Eventually, when Octavius or Augustus became the emperor, he he made him king. He's not king in the absolute sense, but he had a lot of power. He, in many ways, was capable. Um, He defended the borders of Israel, defeated enemies, built a lot of things. Um, One time, during a famine, emptied out a storehouse to feed the poor. But he was as cruel and wicked as they came. And uh, he killed his favorite wife, killed sons, killed in-laws, killed all sorts of people that he thought might be a threat um, to his rule. (coughs) At the end of his life, um, he was afraid that uh, there would be no mourning for him, but only celebration, and he was right. And uh, Josephus records that he had several of uh, the leading families, of the Jews, the heads of those families, uh, gathered and put in an isolated place. And when he died, he had told his sister to kill him. So instead of celebration, the people would mourn. His sister did not do that, but he was just an unbelievably cruel man. And uh, when he found out there was one born king of the Jews, his desire was to end the life of that one. So an angel said, hey, "Go to Egypt, and uh, that way the child, when when Terod won't find the child, to destroy him." now here's the interesting thing Egypt is kind of a, an interesting all throughout the history of, of god 's people, the Jews. Egypt is kind of this refuge they go to you know all the way back to to Jacob when, when, when you know when the famine hit the land, Jacob ended up in Egypt and ended up in Egypt so that his, his his children his twelve tribes of Jacob could flourish and grow and then they left Egypt uh, there were in Egypt hundreds of thousands of Jews. I mean, I think at one time there's a million Jews. So there was a whole bunch of people there that were Jewish. So it was an easy place to go to. The other thing that it kind of does is it kind of sets up some parallels between Moses as a prototype, as a foreshadowing of Jesus. And I think it's important sometimes to realize in the Old Testament, I say this all the time, the Old Testament is the book of promise, New Testament fulfillment, and it points to something. There's a lot of things that once Jesus comes onto the scene, we realize points to Jesus. We'll see some of that today, in some of the passages. There's just pointing to Christ. So uh, very interesting. As soon as he really is about a few months old, most likely, I think the manchay probably got to Jesus when he was several months old. They fled, probably financed by all the gifts that they brought. You ever wonder what happened to all the fancy stuff they brought? It was worth a lot of money. What was it for to get them to Egypt? God is always planning, preparing, providing in ways that he's always orchestrating things. So verse 14, Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for each. It was dangerous to travel at night, but he probably felt he had to go. This would have been immediately. Now remember, imagine I came, saw Herod, went immediately to Bethlehem, it's a few miles away. They left. Probably the next day, angels said, take off, and they left. Because this is a matter of days. They were gone. He remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet found in Hosea 11.1. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, here's the cool thing. If you go to Hosea 11.1, you don't have to. But there's right now. But there's a recounting of God delivering his people. You wouldn't read that not knowing about Jesus and think it was talking about the Messiah. The vast majority of the passages in the Old Testament that we now say point to Jesus, you would not know that before Jesus. Now, there are some that point to the Messiah. Isaiah has some. Um, And other places have them. There were a few places. That's because that's how they believed the Messiah was coming. They believed the Messiah was coming because there were places that pointed to Messiah. But when you look at all of the many, many scriptures that the Old Testament, the New Testament says fulfilled, you look at them and say, well, I wouldn't have known that if not for Jesus. And the amazing thing is to see how God had worked to reveal himself all throughout the people of Israel, always pointing to Jesus. I say this all the time, and you probably get tired of hearing me say it, but this is so important. Because in your attempt to understand the entirety of the Bible, you have to understand the purpose of the scriptures. And many people get the purpose of the scriptures incorrect. The purpose of the scriptures is to reveal God. And the primary revelation of God to man is Jesus. And the Old Testament exists to point us to Jesus. It doesn't exist as a separate entity where God's people failed, so God had to come up with a plan B called Jesus. But eventually, he's going to go back and fulfill all the things he promised in the Old Testament to people of Israel. If you look at the Old Testament, it's simply the story of Israel. And you simply look at the Old Testament is that God set Israel up to be his people and they failed, and at some point, God has to go back and fulfill that, then all the New Testament becomes is a parenthetical, brief interlude in the plan of God. And the problem is the writers of the Old Testament never think that way. The writers of the Old Testament, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, all see their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, as pointing to Jesus. Which is why Matthew says... This happened to fulfill, to bring to completion. He did it earlier when he requested a version will be with child. You go to Isaiah seven fourteen. you read that without any idea of Jesus, you have no idea that he's talking about a Messiah. It looks like he's talking about the son of Hezekiah or Isaiah, or excuse me, the son of Isaiah or Ahaz will fulfill that. <clears throat> So, it's important to understand that the guys who wrote the New Testament all saw Jesus as fulfilling all of that. So, when Herod, in verse 16, saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged, furious. And he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem, in all this vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. And this had been spoken through Jeremiah. The prophet was fulfilled from Jeremiah 31, 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. So before I talk about the slaughter of the innocents, let me just say that the passage in Jeremiah, chapter 31, is actually leading up to the promise of the new covenant. And that's the new covenant uh, that, w- that will also be mentioned in Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews says Jesus fulfilled that promise in Jeremiah. Rachel, as the wife of uh, Jacob, is seen as the mother of all Israel, even though she was only the mother of two tribes. <laughs> and, but she was basically seen, you know, because she was the, the legitimate wife, I guess, of, of Jacob. Seen in that way. <clears throat> And we should always understand that all of us to some degree are seen as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a spiritual sense. The New Testament makes that clear. So here we have this brutal and vivid recounting or, t- or telling us of the story of Herod killing the innocents. Now, there are some who have questions there because it's not found anywhere else, like Josephus doesn't mention it. You need to understand that Herod had thousands and thousands of people killed, sometimes all at one time. It is not surprising that the Jewish historian Josephus, who would not be inclined to mention much about Christians anyway, would mention an insignificant town, losing an insignificant number of children by all accounts. So let's talk about this a little bit. Um, Bethlehem was a very small little area a few miles from Jerusalem. The best estimates were that no more than 20 were killed, which is still brutal. Boys two years and older, it doesn't mean that Jesus was two, but it means that Herod figured that by the time the Magi, when they saw the original, the Magi said we saw a star in the rising, Herod calculated. Knowing Herod, he probably added some buffer in there. He just, you know, two years to make sure. I, I, would be, I personally think Jesus was only a few months old. Because I think they saw the star and the rising in the east before Christ was born. They took the journey beforehand. Either way, it really doesn't matter. But the timing, the timing of certain things, that makes sense. If you know when Herod died, Herod died in 4 BC. And if you understand uh, certain things that lead up to when Jesus would have had been crucified for everything to happen, then you, you kind of get that. But um, this, is, this is one of those things that are a struggle. Why is this part of the story of Jesus? I know people who refuse to believe in Jesus because of this. That why would God allow this to happen? It's an interesting thing. Let me say a couple things in looking at all this. And, And some important things to understand about God through all of this. This was not God's will that this would happen. Even though in Jeremiah, there was a prophecy that would happen. This was God allowing humans to be human. To fulfill all their sinfulness. It is a reminder of the absolute wickedness of the human heart. This is why Jesus had to come, because humans were wicked and were evil. And if we are allowed to go to the full extremes, Herod is the extreme example of evil. Obviously, you know, know, 9,999,000 plus out of every 10 million people aren't this evil. He is the, the one in 10 million. But it is an example of how cruel and evil people are. I find it fascinating that people today will refuse to follow Christ because of this, and a lot. Of, and, and yet, we live in a culture where many of those same people have no problem with the slaughter of unborn children. Even today, now we're living in a time where there are some who believe that a child can be born, can be alive for several weeks, and if the mother, in a state of despair, kill the child, then it's okay. That's where we live including people in this state who were elected to office, believe that. So we need to, I find it fascinating and disgusting at the same time that oftentimes these are the same people, at least who believe in the slaughter of unborn children. None of that is ever what God wants. And I hear people say, well, why doesn't God do something about it? And the answer is God does do something. Let me remind you that God always, God does two things. He gives us the freedom to be evil. If God didn't give us the freedom to be evil, we would never exist. Why didn't God do something about evil? Well, what would you have him do? Stop it, okay? So here's the question. When does he stop it? Does he stop it before it ever occurs? Should he have stopped Herod before he ever executed his plan? then why didn't God stop Herod before he killed any of his family? Why didn't God stop Herod before he killed innocent Jews? Why didn't God stop the Romans from putting their children out on the streets when the father decided he didn't want the child? Infanticide, why, why didn't God just kill all the Romans who might at some point put their child out to die? Why didn't God destroy all the pagans who sacrificed their children to idols in the Old Testament before they did it? Because eventually he did. I mean, at some point, when does God act to stop the evil that has not yet occurred? And if he does so, then how do you and I ever have freedom? It's a tough question. But the problem isn't with God. It's with us. World War II, There was a guy named Hitler. Why didn't God stop Hitler? Well, eventually he did. Americans, some of you maybe, certainly people in your family. I had a step-uncle on the third wave at Water Canal, brutalized for life after that. I had an uncle who was the highest-ranking POW in Vietnam um, in the Hanoi Hilton was Senator McCain. He uh, outranked Senator McCain, and uh, he was a prisoner there. Many times God has used people to stop evil at some point. But you know when Hitler could have been stopped? When the German people elected him, they could have stopped that a long time. There were times, we can look back and say, humans always had the opportunity to stop evil. Always. I mean, always. We choose that path. Read the pages of the Old Testament. God allowed the Assyrians To overthrow the northern kingdom. Why? Because the northern kingdom of Israel was evil. They did evil, wicked things. He allowed pagans to defeat them. And then he defeated the pagans with other pagans. The truth of the matter is, God always intervenes to stop evil. But he lets evil run its course so we'll understand how cruel we are. And how good God is. People who aren't followers of Christ probably can't understand that. I don't expect them to. And oftentimes when I answer their questions, I answer it a little bit differently and a little bit softer. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you should be able to understand that. That God lets the cruelty of man flourish so that we see why we need Jesus. The slaughter of the innocents is the evidence of why Jesus came. And it's a reminder that both human and the beyond human, you know, Satan himself, tried to stop Jesus from the very beginning. It was the constant battle. When I read this story, with all the sadness of what it is, I'm also reminded of when Pharaoh tried to kill the Egyptians. And God brought Moses out of that to deliver his people. God is always bringing someone to deliver. In the end, why wouldn't God just end all of it and start from scratch? But he didn't. So this happened. Verse 19, Herod died. And an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. He said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life or dead. (coughs) He just says, go back, but he didn't tell him where to go. I find that fascinating. So it looks like he was going to go ahead and go back to Bethlehem. Because that's, you know, that technically is the hometown, even though he, he didn't grow up there necessarily, that that's where he was going to take him. Maybe that's where he thought he should go. Or to Jerusalem, the holy city. Anyways, it appears that's where they were heading. So Joseph got the child, got up, took the child and his mother, And they came to the land of Israel, but when he heard that Archelaus was heading, reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So I'm going to stop right there. The family tree of Herod is amazing, and it is complicated. He had multiple sons, some of which he killed. Archelaus Archela- and, and, and right before he died, he changed Herod changed his will several times. And right before he died, he decided to put, Arca- he had three sons that he put over place. Archelaus, he put it over the area of Judea, Jerusalem, that area. Anipas, he put over the area of Galilee and some other parts. And then Philip, he put east of the Jordan River. And there was a lot of disputing. You know, they went to, they went to uh, Augustus to, just, you know, to argue and dispute. There's a whole bunch of history behind it. In the end, Archelius was over Judea. And Archelius was crueler than his dad. But he lacked any of the diplomatic skills. He lasted about 10 years. His cruelty was unbelievable. And so that wasn't necessarily known per se by Joseph how cruel he was. But evidently, he had a reputation of being cruel. So he decided not to go there. And then he was told to go to Galilee. Um, in a dream, but it doesn't say where. So notice, he came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was fulfilled to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now here's what's fascinating. There's no place in the Old Testament where it says that. None. <clears throat> Isaiah 11, 1 is a prophetic, it is an obviously Messianic passage, that talks about the root of Jesse. And the word Nazareth or Nazarene kind of comes in the Greek or Hebrew, I guess. No, that would be Greek. Has the idea of being a root. So there was something from that. Evidently, there was something that Matthew had or an understanding that existed that made him think it fulfilled that. And so we all, I mean, there's no reason to doubt him. It was was that way. But Jesus ends up in this tiny, tiny little hamlet in Galilee, known as Nazareth. And there they settle down. And this was from Luke, the home of Mary. And Mary had family there. And uh, Jesus would grow up with cousins like John and James and others. Um, his brothers would be born, sisters would be born there. And in that little area of Galilee is where he was be raised as the son of a carpenter. And um, it, is, it is fascinating when I read this story to see as a reminder that God orchestrates everything to accomplish his will, even through all the sin and frailties of human life. I, I, I hear people say sometimes, and I've, I've commented on this before, I'm not a big fan of this, You know, there's God's will, and then because of our sin, there's his permissive will, and then eventually there'll be his, you know, perfect will and all this. And And I'm like, no, I don't don't do that. Because when I read the New Testament and Old Testament, all I see is God has a will, period. And what I see is God's will being done. Jesus in the garden said, not my will be done, but yours. And through all of the process that Jesus had to go to, the will of God was done. So I don't break and categorize God's will up. I think that's a fallacy. I think that's foolishness. I think that's a pursuit that makes you constantly spend your time trying to figure out, well, what is his permissive will or his perfect will? I think it's just a a cop-out that preachers use a lot of times to make you sound good think if you just read the scriptures carefully, God has a will. And it's done. And the sum, I mean, in, in his prayer, you know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He didn't say your permissive will or your perfect will or the whatever third, fourth will you got there, let's get that done. He just says, Father, your will be done. Because there is but one will of God. And through all of the sinfulness of human life, through all of what we try to do, In the end, God's will is always done. Now, why did God create us? To be in relationship with him. And he didn't let man's sinfulness keep him from accomplishing what he wanted for humans to be in relationship with him. Now, not all of them, because in giving us freedom, he gave us the freedom to reject him. But God didn't let the fact that we all reject him Keep all of us from coming to Him. God still accomplished what He chose to create people who would be in fellowship with Him, who would experience the unbelievable presence of God in their lives. To do that, He did what He always knew He was going to have to do come be one of us and die for us. And from the very beginning, That which is in opposition to God sought to keep that from happening. And God made it happen. I think sometimes we need to realize and remember the single most important thing in a person's life is to come to Jesus. That's why Jesus came. All of their lives, every person's life has so many plot twists and strange things and all these things that happen. And I ultimately don't know who will and won't follow Christ. It's not my job to know. It's my job to find a way to get them to Jesus and let Jesus do what Jesus does and trust Him with it. And however He wants to use me in that process, that's fine. But you know, we, we discuss sometimes, we discuss this with staff a lot. When Joe and I were talking with it over lunch. Yeah, I paid. Joe never pays for lunch, in case you were wondering. It never happens. I figure when I'm old and decrepit, he'll do it to thank me, but not now. Actually you paid for lunch, so I can't blame blame take my credit for that. But we were talking about the essence of what we do in ministry here, to boil it down. And that our passion has to be for people to be saved. Because in the end that's all that really matters when they face Jesus, when they face the judgment, the first and most important thing will be, did you trust me? Not did you believe all the doctrine correctly. Did you get your understanding of the seven days of creation right? Did you understand properly the universal flood? Did you figure out the second coming of Christ, and you get your chart in order so that you got it all charted out correctly. He's going to say, did you trust me? And then did you help other people trust me? And I think that's what matters because that's the will of God, that the people you know and the people you love fight through all the hardship and difficulties of life so they can come to Christ, which from the very beginning of his life, he came for and fought through all the battles of those who opposed him. And I take great comfort in knowing this. If God can defeat Herod, well, then the people I know and love, he can overcome all the obstacles in their life so they can come to Jesus too. Don't give up praying for your family. Don't give up praying for your friends. And I say this many times, you don't know in the closing minutes of life if they don't finally come to the realization, maybe I better trust Jesus. So you don't give up praying for them and helping them. And if the thief on the cross in the closing moments of his life, can come to Christ. Anyone can come to Jesus. So don't ever give up on people and think they can't come to Christ because they can, unless their name is Herod.